Good morning and welcome to another episode of Alabama Care. I am Lane Hagan and I'm here with Ms. Chandra Monteristelli of the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program. Would you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about how long you've been here? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Lane. It's so nice to be here this morning. Uh, I am Chandra Monteristelli. I'm a senior staff attorney with the Alabama Disabilities Advocacy Program. I've been here for just over six years. I actually started in 2016 after my first summer or first year in law school as a law clerk and just kind of never left um it's great to be here i love to do this work and i'm really excited to be here with you this morning lane thank you um i was reading a little bit about your background and i was interested it said you were a special ed teacher at one point correct yeah yeah that's right um i think that's awesome that you took that a little bit further and are now advocating for the community um thank you um, so tell us a little bit about ADAP. Tell us um, how long it's been going and, um, and there's a bunch of different programs and let's, let's try to dive into that a little bit. <laughs> sure, so ADAP, we are the federally mandated, federally funded protection and advocacy system for the state of Alabama. So we are part of a nationwide network of I believe 57 or 58 PNAs. Um, we were founded in 1975. Um, with the passage of the Protection and Advocacy for Persons with Developmental Disabilities Act. And our initial mandate was really focused on people living in facilities to make sure that they're free from abuse and neglect. Um, obviously, we still are committed to that foundational principle, but our advocacy over the last um, 47 years has really expanded to protect the rights of folks with disabilities across the nation in every aspect. Um, so we've got a variety of funding streams now. We still have our original and biggest ones, which are uh, for folks with developmental disabilities and folks with mental illness to um, ensure that they're safe from abuse and neglect and to protect their rights. Um, but we also focus now on helping people with employment supports and employment services, especially folks who are receiving social security, we focus on helping folks with assistive technology and traumatic brain injury services. We focus on accessibility um, at the polls and voting access broadly, especially for people who have been, you know, historically disenfranchised. So over these last almost 50 years, our mandate has really expanded and our work has become very broad and it's broadening every year. <clears throat> That's wonderful. Um, is it a free service or does it cost anything? I mean, how, when someone wants to inquire about services, mm -hmm. how do they start that process? Sure, so to answer your first question, yes, it is completely free. We do not charge for our services. Uh, we cover out of pocket costs. We absolutely do not charge anything. So kind of the process of getting hooked up with us, um, folks will call our main number, they'll get set up for an intake either um, with our adult team advocate or our children's team advocate, depending on, of course, the age of you know the prospective client. Mm -hmm. They'll go through the intake interview, and then from there, we'll kind of look at, um, <clears throat> you know, is this something we're gonna take on for advocacy? Is it something where they're really just asking for information? And then kind of depending on what it is the person needs, we'll kind of go from there. Um, what's the time frame normally on Say we start the process, say a phone call is made, uh, what's the time frame when it comes to an in a full intake? So typically folks will have their intake done within five business days. That is always our goal, that's what we strive for. And then after that intake appointment, 
their case will be reviewed pretty quickly, usually in less than a week, and they will be hooked up with somebody within a week after that intake appointment. So we try to move very quickly. That's awesome. I know uh, a lot of times these issues can be so time sensitive. So the fact yes. that y'all can work quickly is huge. And, um, and we do try to that end as well. You know, when somebody contacts us with an urgent issue, we try to get them hooked up with somebody that day or within 24 hours. So again, we, we try to be very sensitive to, you know, how emergent these issues can be. Wonderful. Thank you. That's perfect. Um, so uh, <coughs> there are seven or eight different categories that y'all, um, or programs, I think, mm -hmm. inside ADAP. Um, which one would you say is probably the most requested? I would say our two biggest ones are definitely the PAD, which is for folks with developmental disabilities, and PAMI, which is for folks with mental illness. Um, those are our biggest and oldest funding streams, and I would say the vast majority of folks we serve fall into those categories. Um, okay, come back. Um, so one thing, uh, I, I was personally curious about is what what would you say from your experience is the most pressing issue uh, people with disabilities face in Alabama? <laughs> so big question. And that can be <laughs> that can be a level a layered answer for yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely a, a big question with a lot of potential answers. I would say you know in my work. Um, being able to access the services folks need for community integration is one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue. Of course, as we know, community integration is the mandate of the Americans with Disabilities Act, further developed you know, by the Olmstead case from, I believe, 1999 or 2000, mandating that all persons with disabilities should receive services in the least restrictive, most integrated environment. So obviously that mandate is very broad and extends across a lot of needs and situations. Um, <clears throat> not just things like people living and getting medical services in the community, but also getting the most integrated and least restrictive education services, right? Um, being able to access the necessary services that allow people to live and thrive and receive services and education in their communities the same way as non-disabled folks is definitely a huge, huge issue in Alabama. And, you know, I could talk for the rest of the day about the reasons why I think that is, but that is definitely the biggest barrier I see. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I, I was, uh, I had a broadcast recently with the Medicaid agency mm -hmm. and one of my questions was about um, transportation and especially in the rural parts of Alabama it's just very lacking yeah. and um, that was a huge complaint that a lot of parents have brought up and a lot of people uh, they're just there's not the options just aren't there um, and it's a it's a manpower issue mm -hmm. and you know it, it's a cost issue you know those those vehicles that you know, some of these individuals need are not cheap. They're, mm -hmm. they're hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And then you have to have somebody to keep them up. Then you have to have somebody to drive them. And it's just, it's a big problem. And I completely agree with you. And I, um, I just, <laughs> you're exactly right. That's, um, <laughs> so, um, since I mentioned Medicaid, let's, let's hit on that. Let's talk about Medicaid waivers. Uh, it's a topic that comes up a lot that mm -hmm. is somewhat controversial for a handful of reasons. Um, 
which category kind of follow handles Medicaid waivers? Does it fall into, um, like you said, PAD or PAMI, or is it a different category? So it really depends on the needs and the diagnosis of the person to whom we're providing services. So for instance, somebody who's looking for help with like the ID waiver or the community waiver program, they would likely fall under PAD. If it's somebody who's already on a waiver and they're trying to obtain, for instance, assistive technology, that may fall under our AT category. Um, so it really boils down to kind of what the person's specific needs are. Okay. Um, <clears throat> why, and then we kind of talked about this earlier off camera, but why are these waivers so difficult to obtain and so difficult to get straight answers on? So, <laughs> again, the, kind of a question with, with, I think, a layered answer. Um, I think it is tough, especially in a smaller state, maybe with funding challenges, I, I think there's a tendency maybe to be kind of tight-fisted, which of course throws up a barrier to access. Um, a lot of folks don't know that these programs exist. They're not terribly well publicized, I will say. I mean, before I started working here, even having been a special education teacher, I had no idea these programs ex existed. So they're not very well publicized. They're not super highly known. There are a lot of barriers to access in terms of the legwork folks have to do mm -hmm. to be able to even mount an application for the waivers, um, which is why that's a big thing we help with to kind of get around some of those barriers to access, especially in terms of like obtaining medical records, answering questions, finding time for intake appointments, all these things. Um, and I really do think that boils down to kind of this nature of wanting to kind of be narrow about how services are provided to kind of preserve that purse, which of course is not the consideration we should have, no, but that is what we're up against. I agree. Um, yeah, it, it's funny you say that. I was talking to a mother last week and they just moved into Alabama within the past year and um, the neighboring state they were in, they had a wonderful waiver system mm -hmm. and they were taken care of and she said they have been in Alabama um, maybe nine or 10 months and they hadn't even heard of the Medicaid waiver. So I was like, here's what I think you need. Go look online, see what you can find. But um, yeah, I think we just need to get, it needs to be publicized it way does. more. Um, it, it's, it's such a necessary thing yes. and I, I completely agree. Um, do you think that if we expanded Medicaid, um, I don't even know what that would look like, but if we expanded Medicaid, do you think that would um, make the accessibility issue even less? Like, do you think we'd then be able to get the word out more or you think that's always gonna be our issue is just not being able to get full communication out there with the public? I do, so I do think expanding Medicaid may help with that to an extent in terms of people may be more aware that there is broader access to Medicaid services generally. I think the biggest barrier, and I do think this would be a barrier that would remain even in the face of a much needed Medicaid expansion, would be helping folks understand what is really out there. I think a lot of times people hear Medicaid and they think maybe very basic medical care. I don't think people are really knowledgeable about or aware of kind of the long-term services and supports that are provided under the waiver programs. So getting the information out about those and how they can help you, your loved ones, your people remain in the community would still be really vitally important. 
Um, <clears throat> do you think our state will vote to expand Medicaid? You know, Lane, I, it is one of my dearest hopes, but I'm not too optimistic about that at this point. I would agree with you. Um, <laughs> so one of the issues that has been brought up to my attention about these waivers is just how <clears throat> long it takes and the wait lists can be yes, years yes. long. And um, I kind of proposed that question to the agency and they didn't, they played it off like it wasn't a real thing, but I personally know a few people that were on the waiver wait list for, you know, 18 months, mm -hmm. two years. Uh, is it a manpower problem or is it just a desire to not use the money or why is that so long? I think it's an issue that goes back to kind of the funding issue we were talking about earlier. So each of the waivers has a cap on the amount of people who will be served. I think the biggest one is the END waiver that has about 9,000 slots. Um, and then the smallest one right now, I believe, is the technology assisted waiver, which I think only has about 80 slots. Oh, wow. Yeah, tiny. very tiny, very tiny. Um, <clears throat> and I think a big reason for having these caps on capacity is, of course, like we were talking about, to preserve that funding. And so if you've you know, got folks who are on the waiver for 20, 30, 40 years, of course, that's great. They're getting the services. That's what we want. The waivers, I think, would be helped to be expanded to provide capacity for more folks because just because you've got one person who's using a slot for you know decades doesn't mean that there's not more people who need those slots but yes to answer your question i think the issue is these service caps which are informed by and caused by the funding issues right um, yeah that's, <clears throat> that's a, a, we have um, a little bit <laughs> Sorry, guys, I'm going to read the Facebook chat to you. I think this will work this way. I'll use the mic so the online audience can hear. And Perfect. I'll just present the question. Sure. <clears throat> so Paige says, ADAP is the best kept secret for disability advocacy in Alabama, <clears throat> and they have been around for a long time. I remember them helping my parents with navigating the new ADA and IDEA uh, with my brother's education, the IEP in the 90s. So thank you, Paige, for sharing that. Just kind of commentary. Uh, then she also says, actually, paratransit is just as bad in more urban areas of Alabama, too. We live in Je Jefferson County and have no access to class train public paratransit. So I know that transportation can be a challenging issue. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked about in the past. Uh, Paige also chimes in, <clears throat> safe, accessible uh, public paratransit that allows Alabamians to follow the ADA and live engaged within the community is their least restrictive environment is cheaper than institutionalizing them. Paratransit services are not free, but they save taxpayer money as compared to nursing homes and other nonprofit institutions. Uh, Paige, I agree with you. I think this is a big thing that we can uh, continue talking about. Kim Spangler says, since the waiver info is constantly changing and there seems to be a revolving door with service coordination, obtaining accurate info in a timely manner has been difficult to say the least. Where can the general public go to get updated info online? So I think the most updated info is going to be on the Medicaid website. Um, the info does change a lot. That is absolutely right. But the website does stay fairly up to date mm -hmm. with the rapid changes. Of course, we stay abreast of all of those changes as well um, with our contacts, our communications. We subscribe to listservs to make sure that we have the most up-to-date information. So we will also push out that information as it comes in. Um, either via our newsletter, our Facebook page, outreach events. So I think the Medicaid website is a good resource, but 
we are as well. Um, and I do want to note, so I think Paige raised a really interesting point kind of about how it's cheaper to serve people in the community than it is in institutions. And I think that's kind of a secondary concern to sort of some of the funding stuff we were talking about. It seems like this mindset of institutionalization tends to persist, even though legally the framework is toward community-based care. And I think that's also a really important barrier to access that we're up against. So it is something to keep in mind. Absolutely. Um, what was I going to say? Um, thank you for those comments. Those are wonderful. Thanks, Alex. Um, <clears throat> so one thing personally I think that I wanted to touch on was uh, in regards to the Medicaid waiver. Um, what if a child has a supplemental trust set up? Um, but they still want to apply for the waiver. I, I know this pertains to my, my family mm -hmm. uh, specifically, um, and we talked about it a little bit earlier, but let's, let's talk about it on camera now. So you were telling me I need to try and look into an ABLE account. Yes. So let's get, go into that. Tell me a little bit more about the ABLE account. Where, you know, what would that even look like? Sure, so the ABLE accounts are a really, really great resource because they are not considered as the child's resources or anybody's resources when you are applying for benefits such as Social Security or Medicaid. They're not subject to Medicaid recovery policies. They are not deemed to the child or the applicant as income. So it is a completely separate and apart financial resource. There's no limit to what can be contributed. There's no limit to what you can have in there. And it can be used for anything that's for the benefit of the beneficiary. So there's a lot of creative financial planning that can and often needs to be done when you're applying for these benefits. Getting an ABLE account is absolutely the best thing you can do. And then we do, I, I hesitate to get into broad statements about the financial aspects when I'm talking about stuff like this just because it is so individualized. Um, but I will say our doors are always open to discuss and look at those issues with families. But as a broad recommendation, the ABLE account 100%. Okay, <clears throat> perfect. That's, that's helpful information for me and I hope for other people because it's, uh, it's something I kind of touched on with uh, the Medicaid agency mm -hmm. and they, you know, were like, well, you know, each person is different, each waiver is different, and there weren't a lot of straightforward answers. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you for that. I really appreciate um, So if Sarah Williams says she has an ABLE account, it's been a lifesaver. They're great, and, and they are also a very well-kept secret, so yeah, get I'm, the word out. Exactly. I've never heard of it, so there you go. Um, thank you for that. Um, if a family wants to apply for a Medicaid waiver, would you recommend them going straight to the agency or starting with reaching out to y'all and getting assistance with the application or getting denied first? So what, how would you recommend if, if I needed to go to Medicaid and say, hey, help me with this waiver? Mm -hmm. So I typically recommend that people reach out to us first to help with the application and that's for two major reasons. First, you know, like we were talking about, the application process can be so time consuming and so complex and so Byzantine. Often it's hard to understand and the help you're gonna get from the state or from the agency is usually pretty minimal. They're not gonna give you a lot of help. They're not gonna give you a lot of guidance. So that's the first reason I recommend people reach out to us. The second one 
is so that in the event of a denial, we've been building the record from the start. So that way when we go to appeal the denial at a review, a fair hearing, however far it has to go, we know that we've built the best possible record for the best possible case in appealing a denial. So when in doubt, folks should always reach out to us to help with that process. Okay, that's perfect. Um, so let's talk about specific items. Uh, I personally, over the past two years, have run into uh, Medicaid <coughs> denying many, many different items. And the, the thing that's so frustrating to me has been that these providers, these doctors, these therapists, these boots on the ground mm -hmm. are saying this child needs this item. But yet we have insurance and Medicaid saying, no, that's not medically necessary. How can we combat that? How can we go about saying, okay, uh, I have five people on my side saying, yes, it is. But you have this one agency or this one insurance company saying, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we fight that? Sure. And it's, it's so frustrating because like you said, you have the boots on the ground medical providers who went to school for this, who work with the child saying that something is medically necessary. And then you have the agency who doesn't know the child at all saying, well, we don't want to pay for it. So it is so frustrating. That is exactly the type of thing that we would challenge and appeal that denial. Of course, you know the standard for EPSDT is, is it medically necessary? If it's medically necessary, the child has an entitlement to it. The end, cut and dried. So for folks who were in situations like that, absolutely contact us. That is absolutely the kind of thing that we look at. That's, not, I mean, ugh. <laughs> we could talk about that forever. I um, know. <laughs> So I, I think one thing I've learned is there are certain items that they deem not medically necessary mm -hmm. no matter what. And the way I view it, that should never be the case. Right, every right. child, every adult with a disability is different. These items were created for individual purposes. It should not be a blanket statement that says, Oh, these helmets, they're never covered. They're not medically necessary. Oh, these sleep safe beds, they're not medically necessary. I, I don't, I, that bothers me. Mm -hmm. Like every item should be up for an individual basis yep. review. Yep. And I, I wish there was a way we could go about changing that. Is there a way we could change it or is that, it's just never gonna change? Well, the really important thing to know is that all Medicaid services, whether it's a waiver, whether it's EPSDT, have to be individually tailored to the person. So of course these blanket statements about what you can and can't have, you know, a helmet's never medically necessary, such and such is never medically necessary. Obviously that flies in the face of this mandate that treatment, care, supplies are supposed to be individually tailored and individualized to the person. So again, you ask how can we go about changing that? That's absolutely the type of thing that we would combat through just just consistent individualized advocacy and that's a lot of what we do in terms of you know appealing these medicaid denials challenging these determinations we take little little bites little steps forward to work toward hopefully changing these policies not only to better help the folks with disabilities in Alabama, but you know, also to comply with federal law. Right. Um, <laughs> I think the one of the biggest issues, and I'm sure you can can hit on that, is just how long it would take to appeal with Medicaid. I know. Uh, I just can't imagine that's a, a quick process. No, you're absolutely right about that, and that is one caveat I do have to give to folks. I mean, when you're in this 
we're in it for the long haul. I recently wrapped up an appeal of denial of eligibility for a waiver. So, I mean, we were right at the beginning. It wasn't even a matter of not getting services. It was literally not even being able to get on the waiver. And we were successful, which is great, but it took three years, which is not great. <laughs> and that is just unfortunately one of the things that is so tough when you're combating these issues because people need stuff now, not in three years. But unfortunately, you know, that gets into not just kind of state bureaucracy, but also just kind of the wheels turn so slowly in the judicial system. Yeah. So like I said, that is a big caveat I give to folks. Like, we're in this for the long yeah. haul. I agree. Um, what was I going with? Uh, I think... We have a, a Facebook question. I'll kind of jump go, in. Go ahead. <clears throat> Paige says, um, what are Chandra's thoughts on what action someone on a waiver now, but having trouble accessing their services due to a lack of other support systems to allow their use of the waiver services such as paratransit or available home care aids can take. How do they self-advocate? How can community members with disabilities engage with and partner with ADAP? Sure, so that's a great question. Thank you, Paige. So this kind of gets back to, Lane, what you and I were talking about earlier, how a lot of these problems are so layered and require kind of a layered approach in terms of advocacy. So even where somebody has an entitlement to a service and you're able to obtain that service, the service is useless if you can't get yes. to where it's being provided. And so we encourage folks, I mean, to advocate not only for themselves, but for their communities to be able to access the broad range of services that are needed to give people the best possible lives in the communities. We encourage people, you know, to reach out to their legislatures, to, you know, do action in the community, to advocate with the agencies and with the county level entities that kind of run them. And we can partner with people a lot for outreach for things like, um, you know, public comments when waivers are amended, um, when there's new programs implemented for comments on stuff like that. So we always welcome the opportunity to partner with stakeholders and with community partners to do these kind of outreach and advocacy strategies to get folks the broad range of what they need. So thank you, Paige. That was a great yeah, question. That was a good question. Is that it? Um, we have one more comment here. John Wood says, um, trying to get uh, an ABLE account, it's not working out. John, I went ahead and put the ABLE uh, website link here in the chat, so hopefully everybody can share that. Great. Kim Spangler also said, let's get the websites listed in this chat for the Medicaid waiver site and ADAP. So I'll work on that while the conversation continues. Great, thank you, Alex. <coughs> um, so one thing I know we've kind of, majority of our conversation has been around Medicaid. Do you all battle private insurance as well sometimes, or is it just... Are you, are you strictly working with Medicaid on the state level? No, so most of what we do does end up being about Medicaid just because kind of, I think that's a lot of what people are dealing with. So that's the bulk of our advocacy. But anywhere where the rights of a person with a disability are being violated or not recognized, it doesn't necessarily have to be state action. It can be a private actor like a private insurance company who is somehow violating the rights of the person with the disability by not providing them what they need. So that's also absolutely something we could look at. Gotcha. So that's, that kind of plays <coughs> into what I was going <coughs> into the next question. So uh, for private insurance, I know one thing that comes up a lot in, in the Libby's Friends world is uh, the number of therapy visits that are allowed by mm. private insurance. Each plan, uh, 
has different limits, but most kind of have a limit that is, you know, within the 30 to 60 visits per year, usually. Mm -hmm. That is such a small number. Yeah. How do we go about changing that? Like that is something that personally it has gotten my family a ton of times. And, you know, when you're dealing with these children, especially early on when they need therapy three, four, five times a week, mm -hmm. 30 visits is gone in, in six weeks. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you're paying out of pocket $150 an hour. Uh, it's just, it's astronomical. Yeah. How do we, can we go about changing that? Um, is it a, is that something that you take on, on an individual basis with the employer? Or do you go to the insurance company? How can we do this? I think any of those are good strategies, not just the employer and the insurance company. But again, this is something that's really, really ripe for policy advocacy with your state and federal lawmakers. Um, not only that, but you know, if you can take Again, action in your community, action with your employer, action with the insurance company. You know, often we hear the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So the more that you can be the squeaky wheel, the more that that helps. That's true. That's true. <coughs> I feel like a lot of times the squeaky wheel gets um, muted. <laughs> <laughs> Which is often where we step in because yes. um, they have to listen to us. <laughs> I like that. Um, so... We've talked about this a little bit, but how can parents give input about areas that need services? You know, uh, do you think it's wiser to go to social media and put a blast out there? Or do you think it's more of a, okay, let's go to our policymakers and our lawmakers? Um, what would you recommend? Again, I think you can undertake a variety of strategies to be able to really get the word out there, not just about what your own people need or what you may need, but what the community needs broadly. So things like social media, talking to your policymakers at both state and federal levels, submitting public comments to Medicaid when the opportunity arises, um, attending public hearings and public forums if they're accessible to you in terms of transportation and time and things like that when the opportunity arises. All of these are excellent opportunities to sort of make good trouble and make your voice heard. And if you can kind of round up community members to make everybody's voices heard, there's strength in numbers, so that's all the better. I don't think it's the kind of problem that responds well to really one specific strategy. I think the more sort of broad, layered strategies you can undertake to really hit at the problem from every possible angle, the better. Perfect. Yes, I agree. Um, so let's kind of switch and talk a little bit about accessibility. Sure. Um, that's a bit, it's a hard, hard topic. Uh, you know, personally, my daughter, we have accessibility issues mm -hmm. everywhere we go. Um, we try to think about it uh, from a big picture standpoint and say, okay, if we're going here, how are we getting her in? You know, what's that look like? Um, but, um, I've come across a few different times where I've got a family that say, hey, we just moved into this new apartment and there's two or three steps. We need a small little ramp. But our, our tenant is telling us we can't, like we can't, or the homeowner saying we cannot put a ramp in. How do they fight that? So, you know, it's tough, of course, because we've had the ADA now for more than 30 years and we still run up against every single day places that don't adhere to it, that are physically inaccessible. 
When you're in a situation like that, for instance, where you're living in a rental and you need to make an accessibility modification and the landlord or the homeowner or whoever is telling you no, that's absolutely the kind of issue that the Fair Housing Act covers. So there are a variety of strategies. You know, there's informal advocacy, self-advocacy, um, a really, really good avenue that I think is also not very well publicized. Again, something I didn't even know about until I started doing this work is all federal agencies have an administrative complaint process through their offices of civil rights to be able to address issues like this. So for instance, if you're in a situation like what you're describing that would implicate the Fair Housing Act, folks can make an administrative complaint with the agency through uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development's online portal. Now often, even bringing up the words administrative complaint and HUD is usually enough to get the bad actor to acquiesce. <laughs> but it's absolutely the kind of strategy that people can undertake. And the nice thing is it's minimally adversarial. You know, I know that can be tough for some folks when you're in an adversarial proceeding and you're already in the situation of kind of trying to manage your own life, your family, your family members' needs. Um, when you make this report to an administrative agency, they take on a lot of the legwork in terms of investigating and developing a resolution. So that's also a really good avenue for folks who may not want to get involved in that adversarial process. Um, of course, those are also the kinds of issues we look at, so folks should always feel free to contact us if they're in a situation like that, because of course you do have the right to an accessible dwelling. The, the few that I've come across, I've just told them, look, like you absolutely have the right to be able to get your family member in and out of your house. If they tell you otherwise, you've got ADA on your side, mm -hmm. you've got, you know, I was like, I think if you just, most often we just get, you know, portable ramps that you can just place mm -hmm. and remove and that doesn't usually cause a problem. But um, it's come up a few different times and I'm just like, you know, you have the right to get in and out of your home. Yep. Whether you're the owner or you're paying rent, like you have that right. They cannot take that away from you. And that has solved our problems. But I, I wanted to get a legal answer just in case, you know, it did become more than that. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you for that. Um, so you kind of touched on advisory councils and f public forums. Um, how can someone get involved in one of those? Like I, I personally would like to have a little bit of a, a say-so in some um, accessibility issues in my community and in the, on the statewide level, I feel like I could probably provide a little bit of guidance in that. But how does someone get involved in an advisory council? That I know Medicaid told me they have <coughs> some advisory councils and some parental councils, but they didn't give a lot of information on when they are, when they meet, how to get involved. So how does one go about getting involved in one? Sure, so it's different, of course, depending on, you know, what the entity is that has the advisory council. Of course, for instance, you know, we have our advisory councils. A lot of state agencies have advisory councils. Um, I think you're probably better off maybe reaching out at a more local level. So most state agencies have county or regional level arms that kind of do like the day-to-day -day operations of you know the waivers or of course school districts um, I think you're probably better off maybe trying to obtain information at that level rather than from the state okay that's perfect um, 
And then, I'm so sorry, I do want to say for public forums and public hearings and things like that, those are always publicized on the Medicaid website. They have to publicize those as a matter of federal law. So anytime any change is being made to any Medicaid program or they're trying to implement something new, that will be publicized on the website. Okay. <clears throat> and I know they've been trying to do um, more social media. I know they recently said they've gotten a Facebook page, so I'm hope I imagine that would be out there as well. Yeah. Um, so with school starting uh, this week, and some have already started, let's kind of go into some IEP issues. Um, I know that's always a can be a, a sensitive area, sure. and there's a there's a lot of thoughts on IEPs, but. Um, <laughs> If a family is having concerns or issues with their local school district, what, and, and they can't get an answer, they can't get what they need, what should they do? So if a family is having concerns with their school district, approaching the Board of Education, approaching, you know, higher up in the district level, like the IEP or 504 coordinator is always a good idea. But a big thing we recommend, and this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of kind of preparing the best possible Medicaid application, when you're in a situation where you're having to kind of go above and beyond to advocate for your child and their special education rights and needs, documentation and really illustrating a strong picture of your child's situation is absolutely important. What does your child need? What are they getting? What are they not getting? What is the effect of them not getting that thing that they're not getting? And be ready to present that so you're really painting the fullest picture of what your child needs. Um, ADAP has some resources on our website um, preparing for your child's IEP meeting and of course kind of our special education Bible write not a favor which really describes this process kind of in more detail. Once you've done that we recommend folks contact the district's IEP or 504 coordinator in writing about their concern. Always make sure things are in writing. Make sure you're communicating in writing. If you're getting denials, and again, this goes for Medicaid as well, if you're getting denials, make sure those are in writing so you have something to challenge. Um, create that paper trail to tell them what you're unhappy about, how what the child is getting doesn't reflect the promise of their plan, again, the impact on the child, and what you want to happen to fix it. Make sure you're being proactive in terms of, you know, requesting a meeting by a certain date so you have an opportunity to discuss what the child needs and what they should be getting. And then if you still don't get the resolution you want, you have a few options for next steps. Um, the Department of Education, just like other federal agencies like we were talking about, also has this administrative complaint process. Um, and there's also a variety of ways that ADAP can kind of step in. Um, so again, folks should definitely contact us. We do have in our right not a favor kind of a conflict resolution process. So I, I know that was a lot of information. <laughs> but again, it's kind of a layered yeah. problem that requires a layered approach. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, why is there such a negative feeling and kind of a dark cloud around the IEP world? So I'm going to be kind of blunt here. The short answer is ableism. For school districts and, you know, for the state in general, again, this kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier. Providing more services means spending more money and doing more administrative work and putting in more effort. And a lot of times, and, you know, I think this is a money problem, I think it's a cultural problem, I think it's a political problem, 
entities like school systems, like benefits providers, just don't want to do the amount of legwork, spend the amount of effort, spend the money that it requires to serve these kids and these people, not only in line with what they need and deserve as human beings, but also within the mandates of the law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, um, personally, our IEPs have never really been a big problem, but in my, in my special needs dad's group, I hear some of the horror stories that some of my friends mm -hmm. are going through, and I just, um, baffled like I just I hate to hear the negative things being said and you know that or like it took three hours it took four hours I just that just makes me sick yeah um, yeah our we are our biggest advocates for our child and if our school district can't provide what they need it's just I, I get it's not okay absolutely um, and it is it is a civil rights issue just like everything else we've been talking about today it is absolutely a civil rights issue, which is you know, part of what makes it so important. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the only thing that I've actually kind of gone into thinking about our IEP and what we need and what Libby needs is um, you know, when school's out in the summer, Libby doesn't receive her therapy, her services. Mm -hmm. And last year we kind of br brought it up, said, hey, um, you know, we are interested in getting Libby services this summer, her therapy specifically. And we didn't put it on paper. It was just, you know, a face-to-face -face conversation. Mm -hmm. But um, it was not very well received. It was like, no, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't get those in the summer. You know, if you want them next year, maybe we can add it to our IEP, but not going to do that. And I was just kind of like, well, no, like that's not how that works. What, how should we have done it? How can we go differently about it to make sure she's getting those services in the summer? Um, is it something we just need to change in the IEP? Yes. Or, okay. So extended school year services are absolutely a thing. Um, it does need to be in the IEP. So if you're in a situation where you or you know anybody else is requesting services for your child in the summer and you're being told that the school doesn't want to do that, if you're kind of being deterred or discouraged, um, again, really important opportunity to kind of start building that paper trail, make the request in writing, call for an IEP meeting to have it added to Libby's IEP, and then if the school still continues to push back, that's when you call us. <laughs> I don't think they will. Um, I think if we just say, hey, you know, we're going to change the IEP, I think they'll mm -hmm. kind of fall in line. But it was the only time really where we've kind of had a, I guess a negative thought mm -hmm. towards our, our school district. Um, but that's behind us now. Um, <laughs> so let's kind of go into some success stories that ADAP has had. Uh, what has been ADAP's most successful thing in your time? So we've had a lot of really important successes in my time here, both on a systemic and an individual level. Um, so I'm sure you're probably familiar with um, our prison litigation. I know it's been made a lot of news kind of in state and national um, newspapers. Um, so over Christmas, I believe, um, we got an opinion handed down, I think it was like 600 pages, um, from the federal court in Montgomery, kind of describing all of the problems, what needed to be done to fix them. So of course that was really exciting to kind of see these systemic problems with the prison system laid out and what needs to be done to fix them. And we're very hopeful that that's gonna 
result in some big changes, you know, for vulnerable folks. Um, you know, we've had cases um, helping people who are in county jails, waiting for mental health care services, um, conditions in county jails where we've gotten good results. Um, <clears throat> we've had, you know, even smaller, more individual things, you know, successful Medicaid appeals, getting folks onto waivers that they had been waiting for but denied eligibility. Um, we recently had a case where one of our attorneys was able to get a zoning variance to allow a family to have their service animal. It was a miniature pony, which is something, of course, I know, <laughs> which is something that is allowed by the ADA. Of course, the city was being difficult about it. We were able to get that for that family. Um, so we have a lot of these great success stories, like I said, both on a systemic and an individual level. And of course, those are the really exciting things that give you kind of the get up and go to keep going Absolutely. when it feels like you're pushing the boulder up the hill. Absolutely. Um, so if a person is, say, waiting on a waiver appeal for two or three years, mm -hmm. if they get approved, is there, um, would they get like prior coverage where they could get reimbursed for the money they've spent on equipment and services, or does it just start from the time the appeal is approved? It starts from the time the appeal is approved. Um, I have seen cases where folks attempted to argue for kind of that back coverage. I have not seen them be successful. Gotcha. Um, so as, a, as an individual and as an advocate for the special needs community, how can we help ADAP be more successful? Um, is there, is it social media? Is it, you know, just spreading the word? Or what can we do to help y'all be more successful? So spreading the word is a hugely important thing. I think it was Paige who noted earlier that we are a well-kept secret. And you and I were kind of talking about this before we got on today um, about how we're really trying to kind of publicize ourselves so that people know that we exist and so they also know kind of the broad range of what we do. Even, you know, today when we've been talking, I've been able to kind of describe a really broad range of advocacy that we undertake. I think a lot of times people don't know just how much we can and will do or just how many issues we can cover. So, I mean, social media, spreading the word, word of mouth, um, any community groups, definitely just making sure that they know about us, referring folks to us, so that we you know, are helping as many people as possible. And so we're getting the opportunity to kind of bring cases that may have the um, potentiality to sort of change things on a systemic level, um, but really just making sure, like I said, that people kind of know we're here and that we cover a really, really broad range of stuff will help us more than anything. <laughs> I know I can do that. <laughs> spread the word to all the community that we have and um, our special needs dads group, and we'll just do as much as we can to help. Um, well, great. That's exciting. Alex, you got something? Sure. We have a, a, <clears throat> a few comments here. I'll go back a little bit. Um, Ken Spangler says, there are Facebook groups of family members in Alabama organized to share info. I've seen info. I've seen one of for self-directed and community waivers. I went ahead and put a Alabama self-directed services link in there on oh, Facebook. Great. Is there a shout out lane that you'd like to give to some Facebook groups? Um, I know Hannah has one that's uh, small. Is it uh, special, special in a small town. I yes, Hannah has one. Um, I know Tammy Moore over at CRS has one. 
I'm not sure what it is called, but I can reach out and get that information. Um, I think it's more about equipment based and uh, you know getting equipment in the right hands and used equipment if it's gently used to people who need it. Um, yeah, I can definitely get that added. And I'll put it back on chat too. So the audience members, if you have a <clears throat> Facebook group that you'd like to you know put here for others to see, please do so. Sarah Williams, who you guys know is an anchor here at Alabama Care, said, and this is going back to the number of visits allowed under a waiver. She said, <clears throat> I had to change insurance and my physical therapist visits went down to 15. I live in Georgia now. Oh, goodness. That's uh, so some other examples there. Kim Spangler says she's plug-in partners in policymaking Alabama. So it looks like uh, I just heard 50 applicants uh, and 30 people are going to get in. So we're excited uh, to be a part of that again. Paige Perry, how do individuals reach out to our legislators? What's the best strategy to reach them? Email, call, snail mail, letter, in person, any advice on what triggers their attention best? Uh, so again, I, I, I know I kind of keep saying this, all of it, everything, every strategy you can undertake. So call them, send emails, send letters, be the squeaky wheel. I know, you know, Lane, you said sometimes the squeaky wheel does get muted. Unfortunately, that is true, um, especially in, you know, certain regions, certain areas. But the more you can do that, the more of a splash you can make. And again, you know, where the issue does get into one of kind of legal rights and legal entitlements, you should always call us, even, even if just to get some advice or some information, folks should always feel free to call us for things like that. Um, you may see a little bit of a lag online. We're going in and out, but we are still live and this whole recording will be posted to YouTube. So make sure you go to the YouTube channel, Alabama Care, where you can see this uh, entire broadcast. Another thing from Kim says, a common experience is going back to the IEPs. A common experience <coughs> among money f many families in our state, RE, IEPs, has been noticing a stark difference between what's on paper versus what happens in the day-to-day. -day. For example, the percentage of time being reported in the LRE, I'm not sure what an LRE is, we all need schools to be more accountable. Best advice, get involved, see what's actually happening to verify the written words and join Partners in Policymaking Alabama. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 100%. Um, and uh, Mendy says, what about a large school system that doesn't have automatic door openers for wheelchair users? So in terms of maybe kind of asking what should be done about that, again, that's an accessibility issue that falls under, you know, not only the IDEA, but the um, ADA as well. So if you're dealing with a school system that does not have this accessible entrance for kids in wheelchairs, again, that's something you know you can advocate with your school system kind of on an individual, informal basis. You can look at that complaint process through the Department of Education like we were talking about earlier. Um, and always, 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 you can call ADAP. Perfect. Uh, and we've got some community members that are going back and forth in chat asking about partners in policymaking. I believe it is wrapped up for this coming year, mm -hmm, but yeah. you can send in applicants for the 2023 at the end. That's right. Uh, we'll start over. Um, but that's about it for questions we have for chat. We appreciate you guys being here. Uh, and I'll hand it back over and let you guys go ahead and take it out. Yeah, um, I really appreciate your time. I think you've helped You've helped me. You've, you've given me a lot of information that I can use to, to get out there and to help our community. And I, I thank you for... Um, all of your information, all of your help, 
what you do each and every day is is so wonderful and I appreciate it so thank you very much Chandra and um, I look forward to hopefully doing this again you know I, I always come to the table and hope that we can start the conversation and continue mm-hmm. it down the road because obviously these are issues that are not going away absolutely issues that will always continue to grow and can be expounded upon and um, hopefully we can peel back some of those layers and make you know some of these changes that are necessary so um, Thank you for your time today, and um, that's all I've got. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I mean, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think conversations like this are absolutely the first step in kind of peeling back some of those layers, and the more that we're all working together in kind of a communal setting,